If you have your copy of Scripture, we're in Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, we're going to be looking at verses 21 through 41 this morning from Acts chapter 19. Again, Acts is in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, fifth book of the New Testament, and we'll be in Acts 19 this morning. Be reading from the English Standard Version this morning, Acts 19. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. She, whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And so the city was filled with confusion. And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asriarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew... For about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of Ephesians is is a temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these men, or seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemous of our goddess. If if therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. This morning I want to talk to you about the gospel disturbs 
people. The gospel disturbs people. March 3rd, 1995, a group of white police officers pull a black man from his car and brutally beat him, while amateur cameraman George Holliday captured it all on video. Four LAPD police officers are indicted on charges with assault with a deadly weapon and excessive use of force by a police officer. After a three-month trial, a predominantly white jury acquitted the officers, inflaming the citizens of L.A., and the 1992 L.A. riots began. During the riots, more than 50 people were killed. I can still remember watching on TV as people were pulled from their cars and beaten. More than 2,000 people are injured. 9,500 were arrested for rioting, looting, and arson, and the results were $1 billion in property damage. On the third day of the riots, Rodney King made his now famous plea, people, I just want to say, can't we all get along? Can't we all get along? I've never been in a riot. I've never been attacked as a result of a riot. I know it does not seem to me uh, to be an enjoyable experience. This passage of scripture this morning tells of a riot in Ephesus. And the riot was instigated by none other than the apostle Paul and the newly planted church at Ephesus. Paul was not at the center of action in this riot. However, it had to be frightening for him. In fact, many believe that when Paul wrote 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, that he was speaking of this very incident in Ephesus. Listen to what he wrote in 2 Corinthians. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raised the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessings granted us through the prayers of many. I doubt most of us have ever had to face opposition of our faith like this. And hopefully we never will. However, with that said, if it ever does happen, if there ever is a riot that breaks out because of the gospel, we shouldn't be surprised. We should not think that we should somehow be spared persecution as Christians just because we live in America. Christians in other countries have suffered greatly for their faith. We should be ready in case there is ever a time when persecution comes. It's interesting as we read this passage of scripture this morning that Paul does not show up until verses 30 and 31. However, the goal of Luke is to show the impact of Paul's ministry on Asia. Furthermore, Luke wants to record uh, the opposition that comes from the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he wants to show how the gospel disturbed a whole entire city. The disturbance in that city has to do with followers of what is known as the way. Listen, the way identifies those that were followers of Christ. 
They are those who are his disciples, followers of the way. And in this context, it identifies a movement. And it is a movement that arises from and is grounded in faith in Jesus Christ. This movement identifies a new way of living, a new set of beliefs. The Jewish religion had a focus on what is called orthopraxy which is simply a rite of practice. In other words, making sure the religion was practiced rightly. That's what the Jewish religion focused on. While the Greco-Roman religion was largely focused on the performance of rite rituals. However, here comes the followers of the way. Without priests, without sacrifices, and without temples yet focused heavily on theological content, and it is therefore totally set apart from Judaism or paganism. And Luke is showing us that the ultimate, that ultimately the Lord is in control. Even in the midst of a riot breaking out, the Lord is in control. We see that there are those who will oppose the gospel, but that does not mean that the Lord is not in control. Unbelievers oppose the gospel because Satan has blinded their minds and the gospel confronts their sin. Let me be clear. God's sovereign providence protects his church. Even when faced with opposition and those who stand against the way. They stand, those who stand against the way stand in impotence because they have no power against an almighty God. However, when the gospel is shared, It is disturbing and Satan will do all he can to bring opposition. So one of the first things I want us to see in this passage of scripture is this. When the church proclaims the gospel, Satan will bring opposition. When the church proclaims the gospel, Satan will bring opposition. Why do people spew so much hatred towards Christians. If Christians are following the teachings of Christ and they are good citizens as they are called to be, then why is there so much hatred and opposition towards Christians? The answer is easy because of Satan. You say, well, what do you mean? I want to be careful here that I'm not giving Satan more power than he has. But let's be clear. Satan or the devil is at work in the world and he stands in opposition against everything that is standing for God or Jesus Christ. Scripture is very clear on that. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We are in a battle, followers of Christ. And our battle is not against human forces, but you and I are in the midst of a battle against spiritual forces. Remember what we read last week? People came forward. They burned all of their books on magic. They openly repented. And as a result, the word of the Lord, it said, continued to increase and prevail in Ephesus. The scripture tells us. And and now a riot's taken place. When the church repents of her sins and the word of God continues to increase in a town and prevails, Satan takes notice. He doesn't just sit back and go, oh, well, you know, look at this. The Lord's doing another work. He didn't sit back and do nothing. 
He does not sit there and, and wring his hands. Satan's not a pacifist. He isn't like, well, oh, this is just going to happen. He goes to war. He launches into attack mode because he, he stands in opposition to God. And if we sit there as Christians and think, well, uh, our church or myself has not had any opposition from Satan. And if we look at our life and, and we say, well, you know, I've not really been opposed by Satan. Then here's the thing, church. We should examine ourselves and ask ourselves whether we are even doing anything that is significant enough for Satan to attack us in the first place. Because if you're not working for the Lord, guess what? Satan don't care. Because you're not doing anything. Though the church in Ephesus was followers of the way, the power was not political. It was spiritual. You notice as we read this passage of Scripture, we don't read anything about these followers of the way setting out to shut down the temple. We don't read anything about them having petitions signed against the silversmiths to stop making their shrines. We don't read anything about them setting up boycotts to keep people from doing things that they did not approve of. You know what they did? They proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ in Ephesus. They showed the power of the gospel through public repentance. And so many people were being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ that the business of these idol makers was being jeopardized. I'm not saying that the church can never use political means to accomplish a spiritual goal because I believe it can happen and there are times that it should happen. But there is a proper place for it. Paul did this very thing by reminding people of his Roman citizenship. The fathers of a reformation used political power to establish a reformation. But our focus is not primarily on political power, but on the power that is demonstrated through living out the gospel in our lives and the proclamation of the truth of the gospel. You know what changes a culture? If you ever want your culture to change, you know, I hear a lot of people talk about, oh, our culture's in such disarray. Look at the culture we're living in. Oh, there's a culture of this and a culture of that. We hear that on the news a lot, don't we? Well, it's a culture of racism. It's a culture of, you know what changes a culture quicker than anything? When people get saved. That's what changes the culture. When people get saved, and when people get saved, you know what happens? Satan brings opposition. But what is it that causes people to oppose the gospel? What is it that causes people, individuals, to oppose the gospel? What is it that causes people to be disturbed? To, to say, well, that disturbs me. That disturbs me. That gospel message is disturbing. Let me also be clear before we move on. Now, Satan doesn't have any power that the Lord does not let him do. Satan can't act without the Lord allowing him to act. And if you want to know more about that, just go read um, Job 1 and 2. It's pretty clear who's in control and who's not. And as you're reading that, and remember, Satan comes to the Lord, and the Lord says, 
Where have you been? As if he didn't know. And Satan says, I've been roaming to and fro on the earth. And what happens? The Lord brings up Job's name. Job's name. Have you considered my servant Job? God's in control. Satan's on a leash. But why are Christians, or why are people so opposed to the gospel? Secondly, I want us to see this. The gospel is disturbing because Satan has blinded people to the truth. The gospel is disturbing because Satan has blinded people to the truth. The only thing that Demetrius and the others could see was the potential of losing money. They're blinded to the truth. How do we know that Satan actually blinds people to the truth? How do we know this? Well, because God's word tells us this. It says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. And in their case, the God of this world Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. The God of this world, Satan, blinds people. Those who do not know Christ as their Savior do not have the capacity to accept or understand the things of God. They cannot do it because as the scripture tells us, the things of God are spiritually discerned. And so they can't even accept them or begin to understand them. Why do you think the people in Ephesus are worshiping a statue of a multi-breasted woman? Because they can't understand or accept the things of God. The legend was that Artemis fell down from Zeus and that people were so superstitious that she has to be a symbol of fertility. And so women would invoke her name to help with childbirth. And as we said previously, the temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the world. People would flock from all over just to see this temple. The girls that served in the temple would dress in a way that left one breast bare. And the festival in the honor of Artemis was a huge ordeal that drew all kinds of business to that area. And people would buy these small statues of her and these little trinkets of Artemis and kind of like people um, going to Mardi Gras today and buying the little beads and spending all kinds of money on that. Now the silversmiths had heard of and maybe seen the miracles that God was doing through the Apostle Paul. They knew what was going on. However, they didn't ask to see if what was happening was from God or not. They didn't say, oh, I wonder if the Lord is actually working. They didn't care. Why? Why didn't they care? Because sin and Satan had blinded them. They could not see what they were even doing. They didn't even understand. Demetrius knew all about Paul. Look at verse 26. Paul has persuaded, he says, and turned away a great many people, saying the gods made with hands are not gods. Now, think about that statement. Because I read that statement, and I think it seems rather obvious that if you can make a god with your hands, that it's not a God. That, that just seems obvious to me. 
Doesn't it seem odd to worship something that you can make? Doesn't that seem weird to you? Oh, I made this and look, it's a, my little God. They were blind to the truth. And that's no different than today. Satan has blinded the minds of people to the truth. That's not saying that when we share the gospel, we just say, oh, whatever. It's not saying that we don't share the gospel either. Instead, we should be clear when we share the gospel. We should be persuasive. But we must understand that until God changes the heart of that person by His grace and shines His light on them, they will never respond favorably to the gospel. Unbelievers can't understand the gospel until the Lord reveals the gospel to them. They won't get it until the Lord reveals it to them. And so when we share the gospel, we should pray in such a way that the Lord would allow the blind to see what we're sharing with them. Because they're blinded to the gospel. Thirdly, the gospel is disturbing because it confronts our sin. Now, not many people like to be confronted and they sure don't like to be confronted when they're wrong. In fact, I would say it'd be rare to confront someone when they're wrong and have them respond, uh, thank you for such a great confrontation. That was terrific. Boy, you really set me straight. Thank you so much for that. That's, that's pretty rare for that to happen. It's never happened in my life. In fact, I don't know that when I'm wrong and been confronted that I've responded that way. But let's be clear. The message of the gospel is confrontational. And so is the lives of the people who live out the gospel. Your life is confrontational if you're a follower of Christ and living out the gospel. It confronts sinners with their sin. And that's not popular. In fact, it's downright disturbing. That is exactly what's happening in our pastor's scripture this morning. It's just disturbing. The gospel message has to confront people in their sin. Because if people are not sinners, then they don't need a savior in the first place. Here's the issue today. Many people are presenting a gospel message that's void of sin. And Jesus, as He's just a way to a happier life. If you just receive Jesus, you'll, you'll just feel happy. It's just a, such a great thing. It's just such a better life. And Jesus, He's just such, He's so great. And Jesus is great. But we leave out sin. We leave out the fact that He had to go to a cross and die a bloody death to pay the price for that sin and let me be clear that Jesus is not just a way to a happier life and that is not the gospel in any way shape or form the Bible very clearly makes it known that we are all under the condemnation of sin and that you and I and everyone else in this world falls short of God's glory it makes it very clear that no one has perfectly obeyed God's holy standard and that we have sinned in our thoughts in our words in our deeds and we have habitually rebelled against God we have failed to love him as he deserves to be loved and before anyone can respond to the good news that Christ died for sinners and that he offered 
offers forgiveness as a free gift and that we can spend eternity with Him in heaven, they must hear the bad news that they are sinners. The gospel message confronts sinners in their sin. But not only that, the lives of those who in this case, in this passage of scripture, are followers of the way, confront sinners as well. Why do police officers carry a flashlight? You wonder that? Why do they walk around with a flashlight? You know, the other morning I was out running and um, I had to call my wife. It was about 6.15 in the morning. My stomach was giving me issues, if you know what I mean. And I said, uh, I said, you need to get over here real quick and pick me up. And uh, when she picked me up, she said, I saw a police officer. Um, he kept going into the middle of the median and shining his light off to the side of the road and back towards the, the church there and the houses. Why was he doing such a thing? Why would he do that? Why do they have flashlights? Why do they shine their lights? Well, because light exposes darkness. Right? Isn't that what happens? Because when some guy walks in with a bright light into a darkened room and people are doing bad things, they get exposed. If you want to know what's going on in a darkened room, what do you do? You just walk in and flip on a light switch, right? You can suddenly see maybe some things you don't want to see, but you're going to see what's going on. So when people that used to get drunk and sleep with temple prostitutes and engage in sinful magic arts suddenly stop doing it because they've trusted Christ as their Savior, then those people who are still doing it feel disturbed. Why? Because their sin gets exposed. I can no longer say, well, at least I'm better than, than that guy. Because guess what? He's no longer committing those evil acts that, that I'm committing. I now have to compare myself to someone else. Because if I compare myself to that person that's no longer doing that stuff, I look bad. And you know what happens today when people become a Christian? They get accused of being a hypocrite. And people try to discredit them. You know why? You know why that happens? Because when people become a Christian, it's disturbing. Because it reveals sin in other people's lives. That Christian is no longer characterized by lying and by cheating and by doing things that are sinful. They are now characterized by Christ. They are a follower of the way. They now make others look bad. And so the Christian gets attacked. And Demetrius and his fellow workers didn't care if the message that Paul was proclaiming was true or not. They only cared that they are looking bad. Why? Because they're making these little idols, these little statues. And they're helping lead people to engage in idolatry, idol worship. Idol worship often uses some sort of statue or image. Which is what they're doing. Which the second commandment expressly forbids. It is also of no use to claim that those images are to help us enter the worship of God because it's still engagement in idolatry to pray to a statue or to a picture 
or to a picture of Mary or to a picture of Jesus or any other kind of picture or some sort of saint. That's idolatry. It's even idolatry to set these pictures up in your home or in your yard in hopes that that object will somehow protect you. That's idolatry. It's idolatry to wear a cross and think that somehow that cross has some sort of special significance that it's going to do something special for you. That's idolatry. The followers of the way were exposing idolatry. They're not, they're not out picketing or doing anything else. They're just living their lives. Exposing idolatry. However, sometimes we should say well, or sometimes we would say well, we don't have any statues. I don't have anything like that. I don't go home and bow down to anything. I don't worship anything. I don't use something to ward off demons. But let me be clear that we can engage in idolatry without using pictures or statues. Idolatry at its core is to be more devoted to something than we are to God. So your money, your job, your family can all be idols. Some people make pornography an idol because they're devoted to sensuality. Hobbies can be idols. Sports can be idols. Not that there's anything wrong with hobbies and sports. But when they are out of balance and we spend too much time and money on them, they become idolatry. We can sit in front of a TV for hours upon hours. We can play games for hours and hours and hours. We can surf the internet for hours and hours and hours and never spend any time with God serving Him. That's idolatry. Demetrius very plainly states that his concern in this case is that he's going to lose money. Clearly, his idol is money. Later in verse 27, he tries to make it sound a little bit better by saying, well, Paul's message is hurting the entire way of life because their way of life was focused around the temple Artemis. And if people stop going to the temple, it's going to throw all of our society out of whack. And the whole economic system will be adversely affected. It would be like a tourist town today losing its tourist attraction. That could be trouble. Suddenly, hotels and restaurants are no longer full. Merchants who sold goods to tourists will no longer be uh, making money. They'll be hurting all the customs and the festivities that go along with that tourist town would come to an end. What is worse for the Ephesians is that possibly the goddess that they worshipped and that was worshipped by the world would be dethroned. And what would they do then? Now, you can imagine that these, this kind of talk causes people to get all whipped up into some sort of frenzy. They get all whipped up into irrational rage. Can you imagine being a business owner in Branson, Missouri? And suddenly they're like, I say that because I know many of you go to Branson, right? And suddenly all the people that do shows in Branson say, we're not going to do shows anymore. We're packing up and moving out. We've had enough of Branson. Can you imagine what the business owners would think? I mean, it's their, it's their livelihood. They, and that's what happened in Ephesus. Well, people aren't going to the temple anymore. They're not, they're not buying our trinkets. What's going on? And they're in an irrational rage. They're about to lose money. And so they head to the theater. 
which by the way is still there and it seats about 24,000 people. And they grabbed Gaius and Aristarchus because these guys were associated with Paul and, and, and why they were not killed right there is only by the grace of God and his providence. I'm certain if Paul would have been walking through town at that moment, he would have been killed or even if he would have went into the arena, into the theater like he wanted to, he would have been killed. But let's notice that even though there's this riot, even though these people are all whipped up into irrational rage, even though these people are all frenzied and, and, and angry, God protected his people. Which leads me to the last thing I want to share with you this morning. God sovereignly protects his church against Satan. God sovereignly protects his church against Satan. Now please listen closely. Because notice I said God protects his church. That does not mean that nothing will happen to his people. Nor does it mean that necessarily nothing will ever happen to the church. What it does mean is that he protects his church, which is the bride of Christ. Yes, Christians do die. Missionaries are killed. Christians are even being executed in other parts of the country. But God protects his church. What we are often guilty of as Christians is giving Satan more power than he has. Oftentimes we act like Satan can do whatever he wants and that he can just take control of whatever he wants to take control of. But the fact is Satan is on a leash. And Satan can only go as far as God will let him go. And he can only do as far as God will let him do. He can't go any further than God lets him go. I heard a pastor just this last week as I listened to a message online. Um, the, the pastor said that, yeah, the devil exists, but he's God's devil. We don't like to think like that. But the devil can't do anything that God doesn't allow him to do. He's on a leash. Remember, Paul was stoned and beaten before he ever arrived at Ephesus. And here in Ephesus, he's not stoned nor beaten. Whatever happens in this life, whatever happens to us individually, whatever it is that we go through, let me give you this reminder. God does not sleep when it comes to watching over his servants. You say, well, well, pastor, I've been through this and I've been through that and I've had a hard time and I've, I've gone through this. I don't care. God does not sleep when it comes to watching over his servants. God's never caught off guard by what you're going through. He's not caught by surprise. He never has a time when he says, whoa, I didn't know that was going to happen. I don't know what to do now. God providentially cares for us. God directs us even when the enemy attacks us. Look back at the very first verse we read this morning. Verse 21. What do we see Paul doing? It says, it basically tells us what he's going to do. He lays out his plans. 
He says he's going to go to Macedonia. Then he's going to go over to Achaia and then Jerusalem. And he must also go to Rome. Now some would argue that when, when it says that he resolved in his spirit, that is just Paul's human spirit. But I believe it's the direction of the Holy Spirit. Even in those plans, we see the sovereign providence of God. Look at what he says. He says this, I must see Rome. That word must means uh, required or an obligation. He's required by obligation. It is a word used consistently to refer to what's called divine necessity. He, he has this divine necessity to see Rome. He has to go. God was by divine force moving Paul where he wanted Paul to be. By divine force. Guess where Paul eventually ends up? Rome. But he didn't get there quite how he envisioned he would. How did he get to Rome? You know how Paul got to Rome? He was arrested in Jerusalem. Detained in Caesarea for two years. Shipwrecked on Malta. Then goes to Rome as a prisoner. But he got there. Here's the point. Paul made plans in which he was dependent upon the Holy Spirit. And the Lord directed where he wanted Paul to go. And in this case, he's going to Rome. But he makes him go as a prisoner. Church, we should be seek to be used by the Lord to fulfill his purpose. But how those plans come to fruition is ultimately at the control of a sovereign God. We, we should say, hey Lord, I want to be used by you. But how those things come to be is in God's control. Now back to this right in Ephesus. Notice how God sovereignly protects Paul and the other believers. Paul wanted to go into the arena. He's, he's going to go in because that sounds like Paul, right? He, man, he's ready to confront someone. He's got this great intellect. He's, he's empowered by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, he's probably thinking, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to address this mob and I'm going to calm them down. This is, wow, this is a great chance for me to address thousands of people in one setting and share Jesus Christ. That's probably what Paul's thinking. However, if Paul had walked into that arena, he would have been killed his friends tell him not to go in, and he listens to them. Why do he listen? I don't even sound like Paul. We have plenty of examples in Scripture where Paul doesn't always listen to people. He's kind of got a thick head. In fact, later his friends tell him not to go to Jerusalem. What's he do? Goes to Jerusalem. They say, "Don't go, Paul. You're gonna be thrown in prison." He didn't care. He goes anyway. So why in this instance did Paul listen? Why listen now and not later? You know why? Providence of God. God's plan was for Paul to listen. Paul respected his friends. He respected their influence. He decided not to go, but ultimately it was God influencing the entire situation. So Paul doesn't go into the arena. So how will the church in Ephesus stand this assault? What's the church going to do? I mean, Paul's not there. Well, 
the Jews most likely wanting to disassociate themselves with the Christians, they put forth a man. His name is Alexander. Jews most likely are afraid that the people of Ephesus are going to launch an attack on both Jews and Christians as Jews are also against idolatry. And so Alexander can at least speak and show, show them that the Jews were not the cause of the loss of their business. But they don't even listen to Alexander. They don't even give him a chance to speak. They, they just shout for two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Can you imagine being in that environment? All these people gathered together. Alexander stands up and says he motions with his hand as if he has some sort of control. Everybody listen up. Right? And they just start shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. For two hours. What's God going to do? How's he going to protect the church at Ephesus? Oh, this town clerk over here. He's kind of like the mayor of the day. And he speaks some wise words. He's going to be the one that would have to answer to Rome for this riot. And so he gives assurance to the crowd that the greatness of Artemis is facing no danger and that these two men had, that they had brought had not done anything wrong and they were not temple thieves and they hadn't blasphemed their goddess. And he then lets them know that they there are proper channels for them to follow if there's a complaint. And so they can bring their grievance if they want to. And finally, he gives a warning of the consequences if Rome accuses them of having a riot. And then he basically says, go home. God protects his church. God protects his people. Sovereignly protects his church and his people against Satan. In this case, he uses a town clerk who's not even defending Christianity. Nonetheless, the Lord uses him to accomplish his purpose. God overrules what men may want to do. And God can overrule at any moment the schemes of Satan. You know what's interesting, church? That we have this huge section in Acts where we do not read of any preaching... We do not read of any conversions and the appearance of no major characters except when Paul wants to go into the arena. And that mention is brief. And I believe Luke is making it clear that the gospel preached disturbs people and it even disturbs a whole city. And as I read this, as I read through this passage of Scripture, I'm forced to ask myself, am I doing anything for the kingdom of God that causes the enemy to oppose me? Am I doing anything for the kingdom of God that causes Satan to sit up and take notice and stand in opposition? It forces me to ask myself, is our church... Is First Baptist Church doing anything for the kingdom of God that causes the enemy to oppose us? Is our church doing anything that Satan sits up 
And he takes notice. And he says, boy, I can't have First Baptist Church doing that. I understand that we all don't always need to be opposed. And there are times of peace for the church. But I also get that we have freedom of religion here in the USA. And that gives us some protection from persecution. But I read, read, read something this week that just it stuck with me. And it kind of, I, I couldn't get it out of my mind. G. Campbell Morgan said this. Let us be very careful that we do not waste our energy and miss the meaning of our high calling by any rejoicing in the patronage of the world. It is by the friction of persecution that the fine gold of character is made to flash and gleam with glory. The church persecuted has always been the church pure and therefore the church powerful the church patronized has always been the church in peril and very often the church that is paralyzed church this message forces me to ask are we making a powerful impact on our culture do we make an impact on our culture today would anybody care if this church wasn't here other than the people that are in this room right now? Would anybody care? If the city came in and said, we're shutting down First Baptist Church, would anybody care? Would anybody say, oh, what do you mean? They have an impact on our city. Would anybody care? Have we burned down our idols have we looked at our old sinful life and said, no more? You know, the, the latest surveys show that most evangelical Christians are no different than the rest of the population of the world at large. They watch the exact same filthy things on TV for the same amount of time. They go to the same movies. They tend to have the same standards as the rest of the culture that is around us. What would happen if we spent more time reading our Bible and less time watching TV and surfing the internet? What would happen if we did not watch movies or shows that had nudity and pornography and filthy things in them? Would anyone take notice? What if Christian teens decided that they were going to stay pure until marriage? What if when Christians got married, they kept their wedding vows and worked through their problems and, and didn't get divorced? Right now, divorce among Christians is the same as non-Christians. Christians? What if Christians quit throwing money away on frivolous garbage and supported missions and supported their local church? What if Christians not only called sin sin, but they actually stopped participating in sinful practices? Would that impact our culture today? If we began to take the gospel to people no matter the cost, if we stopped being embarrassed by Christ and we stopped being fearful to share, would we impact our culture today? What if the world saw the effects of the gospel in the lives of the people of First Baptist Church, would they begin to be converted? And would they be convicted of the sin in their own lives? Would the followers of the way of Jesus Christ then cause no little disturbance in the United States of America? I say church, let's begin in Washington, Illinois. Find out if we could cause no little disturbance 
Let us herald the gospel loud and clear. Understanding it's disturbing. And knowing that our God sovereignly protects against the attacks of Satan. Let us cause no little disturbance. Will you close with me in prayer? Father, thank you for your word.